Welcome to the Word Ministry of Resurrection Church, where Dr. Joseph G. Matera is the senior pastor and presiding bishop. We trust that the following message will be a blessing. Open up your hearts and allow the Holy Spirit to minister to you through the preaching and teaching of one of God's choice servants. Hey everybody, I hope you're ready for the Word of God. Today we're going to talk about the power and beauty of the Word of God. We're going to deal with Psalm 19. And today my prayer is that this psalm will provoke a love and yearning for the Word of God, for a life of continual renewal, courage, strength, and truth. Some questions to ask yourself while I'm sharing. Do you think of the Bible as just some mere historical document or a living word? Do you receive strength from God through his word? Or is it more just information to you that you try to understand in your mind? Do you understand both the scriptures and the power of God that transforms? And so in this psalm, as we'll see, God uses the metaphor of nature and the universe to describe the effect his word has on the human soul. This illustrates the fact that God knows all about nature and science, and he's obviously the reason why we have nature and science. So the same God that created nature and the universe is the same God who knows how to meet our deepest needs. Often people just think about the Bible as some dead historical book with old tales of mythical heroes who did great exploits, sort of similar to the Greek gods who came in human form. We see Marvel Comics mimicking this with Thor, and Hercules is also another popular uh, hero that's been on television and movies are made, and we have Zeus and other gods. Some people think the Bible is just a mythical book, but the same way the universe is real, is alive, is the, the earth is orbiting around the sun, and every day we see the sun coming up and then we see it going down. It's not just some figment of imagination. It's not a myth. We actually feel the heat of the sun every day. That's how the Word of God is to be viewed, as real but even more powerful than the sun and the universe. And that's what this psalm is telling us. Hebrews 4:12 tells us that the Word of God is living and active. That means it's not only alive, but it's doing something. It says in Second uh, Thessalonians that the Word is working on the inside of us. In Matthew 22, Jesus rebuked the religious leaders of his day because he said they knew not the scriptures nor the power of God. We have to know the power of God that is evidence through understanding the scriptures. They both go hand in hand. That's why Jesus said to the woman at the well, you are in error because you don't even know who you worship for salvation is of the Jews. But God desires that people worship in spirit and in truth. He put the spirit and truth together. So truly knowing the scriptures means that we're having an encounter with God. We know the power of God through the scriptures and we're gonna see that in this Psalm. Very powerful. In Psalm 119, which happens to be the longest psalm in the whole Bible, might take you almost an hour to read the whole psalm, um, it was continually connecting personal revival with the Word of God. Personal revival. 
was always mentioned, renew me, O Lord, according to your word, was mentioned so much, which means the word of God is meant to transform us. It's living, it's active. It's not just a mere historical document. It doesn't just disseminate information. There is an impartation when we allow the word of God to work inside of us. So let's go to Psalm 19. It says in Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky manifests his handiwork or his design. Day unto day it utters speech. It's preaching through the beauty of the heavens. Night unto night it reveals knowledge. It gives us a knowledge of God. Even not as specific as the gospel is preached, but he shows us there is a God, there's a designer, and should give us an impetus inside of us to get to know this God and seek him. It says, there is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line or their influence, line has to do with inheritance, has gone out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them he set a tabernacle for the sun. The whole universe is God's tabernacle. And he put the sun inside of that tabernacle. The whole universe is like a church building meant to encase the glory of God and to worship the Lord. And the sun is like a bridegroom. And this is poetic language and metaphorical. The sun is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, rejoices like a strong man to run his race. Its rising is from one end of heaven and its circuit to the other, like someone runs from one part of the earth to the next. There is nothing hidden from its heat. And so in this section here, as he sets up what he's about to say about the Word of God, we see that God uses creation as a way to reveal his glory on the earth. As I said already, he refers to the universe as his tabernacle. And then he also talks about the function of the sun as something that emanates heat to the planets and to the people on the earth. And as we're going to see, right after he talks about the heat of the sun and the function of the sun, then he begins to talk about the word of God, the law of God. And why did he do that? Why is there a parallel poetic metaphor related to the sun? And then he gets right into the blessings of the word. Well, it's because people ought to be saturated with the word of God in the same way the rays of the sun saturate the earth. The sun is a metaphor regarding the effect the word of God has upon the human soul. The word of God renews us, restores us, warms us up, give, uh, gives us vital nutrients, vitamins, and the impetus for life. And so Right after he talks about the sun and nature, then verse 7, he says, The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. Wow, I love that. Perfect here means entire, complete, whole, without blemish, stain, faultless, upright. So what he's saying here is every word of God, if it's truly from God, especially that which is in the 66 books of the Bible, every word of God is perfect and without error, since it is God-breathed, or divinely inspired by God. It says all scripture is God breathed in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. And it tells us in 2 Peter chapter 1 that holy men of old were moved by the Holy Spirit 
when they gave the word. It wasn't of any man's private interpretation, but it was through the inspiration of God. And because it's God-breathed and it's the inspiration that comes from God himself, it's perfect, it's complete, it's entire, it's without blemish, stain, it's faultless. And that kind of power that comes from the Word of God, it says, converts the soul. That means it restores us. It brings us back to God, back to our original design, back to the way God originally intended us to live. He restores spiritual vigor, vitality, strength, and faith. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Hearing and hearing and hearing. Staying under the Word keeps inspiring us, keeps imparting to us, keeps giving us what we need to go on. The Word of God causes us to repent and come back to the perfect standards of the living God. Then he says, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Here the word is called the testimony of the Lord. It's so powerful. The word testimony here means witness, prescription, testimony. It is the same word that is used of the tabernacle, of the testimony in Exodus 28:21, and of the Ark of the Covenant in Exodus 25:22, which means something profound, in my opinion anyway, that in the same way the glory of God was revealed in the Ark of the Covenant, in the tent of meeting of Moses, so the glory of God can be revealed through his word. The word is called the testimony of the Lord, the same word that's used of the presence of God in the tent of Moses. It's called the tent of meeting and in the Ark of the Covenant. Wow. When you get into the word, you could enter into the portals of God himself. Jesus said, in my father's house are many rooms. I could say that metaphorically here. And every time you get into a, a particular story or narrative or doctrine or some kind of truth in the Bible and you allow the Holy Spirit to move in you, you're walking into a new portal of God and you're experiencing his glory that testifies of who he is. It's pointing to God and helping you experience God the same way as if you were in the tent of meeting with Moses when God came with a Shekinah glory. So powerful the Word of God is. So enter into those divine portals. Let the Word of God be a witness of the testimony of the glory of God. And then it says that the testimony of the Lord is sure. The word sure here means that it's not up and down. It's not volatile. It's not mercurial. It's not like a thermometer that, that changes every hour. It's sure, meaning every word of God is settled in heaven. You could depend on his word. He's not a man that he should lie or the son of man that he should repent. Whatever God says is true. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that's why whatever he says will come to pass. All the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. So whatever he says in his word, you can count on. You could rest your life upon it. You could anchor your soul upon it. So the word of God is sure, making wise the simple. Wisdom testifies of the ability of God's word to give the naive practical wisdom, which is the application or practical application of, of knowledge. So the word of God gives you wisdom. First of all, it instills in you the fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom. But then after that, it teaches us how we ought to live in the world. The Word of God is not 
primarily a book for heaven. I don't know if we'll need the Bible in heaven, but we definitely need it on the earth. It's the greatest, most practical book ever written for how to fulfill our purpose and destiny in this world. And the Word of God takes the naive, the stupid, the ignorant, whatever word you want to use. Uh, the Bible calls them simple-minded. They're the ones who lack wisdom. And he could take a simple-minded person and turn them into a wise person through the wisdom that emanates from its pages. Wow! I know I was very stupid before I knew the Lord. I knew that I was on a trajectory of nowhere and I was my own boss. I didn't listen to anybody but myself and I, don't, I, I didn't have an idea of a real purpose and meaning for my life. But when the Word of God got a hold of me and I started reading and pouring over that Word after I came to Christ, my whole trajectory changed. I went from being a person who never even conceived of getting married and having children and living a life with all that responsibility to God giving me beautiful wife and family and beautiful family of churches. And that would have never been possible without the wisdom that came from the Word of God. The Word of God practically affects us in this life, not just gives you a free ticket to the next life. And so it testifies of the things of God to the simple-minded. And the reason why we need that wisdom is because before we knew Christ, the Bible tells us that our minds were blinded by the God of this world, 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, that our understanding was darkened, Ephesians 4.17, so that we didn't know the light of the glory of God in the image of Christ, 2 Corinthians 3. But when we came to Christ, we were able to understand, see the kingdom, and understand that God really is the king of the world. He created it, and we are to be submitted to him. And that's the beginning of wisdom, the fear or respect of God. If you're a Christian and you've already received Christ, but you're always making foolish mistakes in your life, it means either you're not getting the right counsel, you're not hanging out with the right people, or you're very ignorant of God's word, and you need to be inspired and informed and shaped by God's word so that practically you can live a life that bears much fruit. Then he says in verse 8, the statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. Statutes mean what is mandated by God, an order, a command, a precept. And so it says it rejoices the heart. How could a command rejoice the heart? Well, the heart is the innermost center of who we are, the center of our being. When our heart submits to the precepts or statutes of God, we can walk in joy because now we have a framework. Now we know uh, whether we are going too far, whether we're in God's will, gives us a comfort and assurance. It gives us a roadmap, a blueprint. It should rejoice our heart because Jesus said, broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many go that way, but narrow is the gate that leads to life, and only a few go that way. Wow, the statutes, the commandments, are boundaries around our life. And as we walk in that framework, we have freedom within that framework to live a blessed life because we know those boundaries involve something 
that ensures a blessing from the Lord because we're walking in his will. Then it says, uh, as I said, it rejoices the heart. The statutes of the Lord rejoices the heart. This is contrasted to the pleasures of sin that do give pleasure, but it only lasts a moment. And after the act of pleasure, whether it's drunkenness, sexual immorality, whatever it is, you experience condemnation, discouragement, rage, bitterness of soul. There's a lot of bitter people out there who have a lot of money, a lot of material things, but because they're not submitted to the statutes, to the boundaries of God, their heart doesn't rejoice. They have a lot of material goods, but they are suffering condemnation from the alienation that they have with God. And I wouldn't want to live like that. Jesus said, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his soul? His soul is worth more than that. When all the blessings of, of uh, the so-called blessings of riches and, and the things that this world offers, nothing like what God offers. So when you submit to the Lord, your heart rejoices in his boundaries, in his statutes. Um, then he says, the commandment of the Lord and that's still in verse 8, Psalm 19, is pure, enlightening the eyes. The commandment of the Lord is pure. The commandment of God, shown in the Ten Commandments of Exodus chapter 20, shown through the covenant that he made with us, through Abraham, um, his commandments are pure, meaning there's nothing perverted in them, but they fit perfectly within the design of nature, with the design of the human life and these commandments are based on how he made us the best way we ought to live he's the maker the bible's the blueprint for how to live and when we follow those commandments our heart rejoices uh, it's pure it's not perverted it's enduring forever and it fits perfectly with the way we were supposed to live and so when we go past those boundaries when it comes to the design of nature, human sexuality, or the proper function of our life and gifts, we don't rejoice because we're outside of the original design of God. And so the commandment of God enlightens or enlightens the eyes, it gives us wisdom and shows us our purpose and how to walk out that purpose within that framework of commands. Verse 9, the fear of the Lord is clean. The fear of the Lord has to do with reverence, piety. If we believe that God is all-powerful, we're going to walk in humility and reverent awe before him. This is the beginning, the foundation of all wisdom. If you don't have the respect of God, the rest of your life is going to be off kilter. You don't have a right foundation. If you build a house without a proper foundation, eventually the whole house is going to fall. So the fear of the Lord is the foundation of wisdom for our life. It's clean. It endures forever. It's pure. Uh, the word clean or pure, uh, metaphorically, you could say, uh, if you had metals, it speaks to a pure metal or alloy. The Word of God is pure, clean, and unmixed with unpure, impure, or perverted elements. Uh, the Word of God may, may seem strange to people, 
Uh, people hate it in the world because it convicts the world of sin, of righteousness and judgment. It shows them that their way is not the best way. The greatest human idol, I believe, at least in the West, in this country anyway, is the love of self, is uh, freedom of expression. That's the sacred cow in this country, even more, I think, than sex and money. Of course, you use your money to express yourself and your sexuality to express yourself because the Bible confines some of that. Some people hate it. And what all I could say is the Word of God is pure. It will endure way past any of our fads, desires, and sinfulness. It endures forever. And the reason why His commandments endure forever is because they're pure, because they fit exactly with the way God designed the universe, both the physical and immaterial universe, it will endure forever. Those who follow God will live forever. Those who don't follow God will be eternally separated from God and they won't experience life. They will have eternal darkness and separation from life and from those who are following God in eternity. And so the commandments of God, because God created the universe, are, comport with natural law. Uh, they are trans-historical, multi-generational. The commands are never going to be outdated. The Ten Commandments, because they're rooted in God's nature and His holiness, and they're rooted in the divine order that He made the world with, they will always be in vogue. They will always be relevant. They will always be operational, no matter what ethnicity you are, no matter what religious background or country, no matter what economic policy your nation has. It could be communist, it could be fascist, it could be capitalist. The Word of God and the commands are the same because the human heart is the same, no matter where we go generationally, or no matter where we go geographically. Then he says, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Judgment here has to do with God's decisions and his verdicts based upon his righteous character. This is his view of justice. It comes out of his judgment. His view of justice arises out of his commandments, which is an expression of his righteous character. It's different from the modern view of justice in that uh, man-made justice oftentimes falls short. Oftentimes it rewards things that God hates. Uh, it, Isaiah 5, it says that there's going to be a day coming when people call good evil and evil good, and that's the day we live in in many ways today. But God's judgments will be based on His character, not on what's in vogue in popular groupthink culture in this cancel culture, in this politi politically correct culture, God's judgments, which will be the final verdict of eternity, are based on his character, not based on man-made desires and man-made self-expression. Uh, um, man will never be fully autonomous, no matter how hard they try. Whether they believe in God or not, they will be held accountable by God because ultimately nobody is independent from God. They're just spiritual rebels when they're running from God instead of submitting and seeking God. And then 
verse 10, Psalm 19, he says, the word of God is more to be desired than gold, yea, more than fine gold, sweeter also than honey in the honeycomb. In light of the above, God expects us to love, to desire, and to yearn for the word more than riches and have joy in his word more than anything else that this world offers, especially the things of the flesh. He doesn't want us to walk around just forcing ourselves to read the Bible, but he wants us to get to a point to pray that our hearts will be turned so that we delight ourselves in his word. Sounds like Psalm 1, what we taught last week. And so God wants us to delight, to desire, to have a, an attachment to, to have an appetite for his word. And because it says it's worth more than fine gold, sweeter than the honey and the honeycomb, fine gold has to do with the fact that it's more important than your job, more important than your ability to accumulate wealth. And because it's sweeter than honey in the honeycomb, it means that it satisfies our soul more than anything satisfies us in the world, especially that which only satisfies the flesh. Verse 11, he says about the word, moreover by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them is great reward. The word warned here in the Hebrew has to do with shining a bright light upon something. The word shines the light of God's truth upon the deep recesses of our heart and reveals our sins so we can repent of it and come back to God. So we are warned by the word, we are renewed, we are converted, we are encouraged, we get faith from the word. That's why it does everything. How could we not love and desire and long for the word? And then he says, if we keep the word, there's great reward. The word both warns us and rewards us in this life and in the world to come. And as he wraps up this beautiful psalm, uh, some scholars actually call this the greatest poem of all time, Psalm 19, incredible psalm. He says, who can understand his errors? Cleanse me from my secret faults. By implication, when the word warns us, uh, it shines that light upon us. It shows us our secret faults. I love the book of Psalms. It's a book of songs, a book of poetry, a book of wisdom. It deals with both the left and right brain. It shows us who God is and warns us and reveals our secret faults. And then he prays for himself, keep back your servant from presumptuous or intentional sin. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and be innocent of great transgression. And so the word of God keeps us from intentional or presumptuous sin because we know the will of God, because his word shines upon us and warns us. It kind of modifies uh, our inevitable erratic lifestyle. It uh, moderates, conforms us, it shapes us, transforms us so that we don't want to run amok anymore and be on our own keeps us from presumptuous sins. Presumption has to do with running ahead of God, doing things that God never wanted you to do, and then turning around and asking God to bless it. That's a presumptuous sin. 
It'd be like trying to jump off a roof and while you're in the air, you say, okay, now God protect me. Well, God never told you to jump off the roof. You did something he never called you to do. That's presumption. And there's no guarantee that if you're not trying to know his word and walk in his will, how are you going to be protected? God doesn't bless presumption or foolishness. It also means intentional sin. There are some sins that we just plan ahead of time. We entertain, we meditate on. Uh, we say, well, I made a mistake. It's not a mistake, it's sin. Or I fell into sin. You didn't fall into anything. You willfully committed sin. And the Word of God holds us back from that as we meditate and delight on it. We love the Word more than we love our own fleshly desires, and it keeps us from those presumptuous and intentional sins. And that's because the more of the Word we have, the more fear the Lord will have, more respect of God, and then the more wisdom we will have according to what we learn today. Finally, beautiful words, verse 14. He says, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. The result of prioritizing God's word in our heart will be our mind and our heart will work in sync together, will be towards God. The desires of our heart and the thoughts of our life will please God. It's not just the outward appearance. It's not just looking good on Sunday when we come to church or when we're on the worship team or when we're preaching or when we're serving in ministry. The ultimate goal of God's Word is that every day, 24 hours a day, whether we're in a church building or not, whether in so-called church ministry or not, the words of our mouth the meditation of our heart will eventually please God. Powerful. May the Lord do that for us. So let's pray. Father, we pray that every single one of us would have such a heart transformation through your word that it would be like being in 98 degree heat on the beach in the sun, soaking in the sun, and even seeing our skin color transformed uh, as we get a tan or, or as we feel hotter or as we feel warmer or as we ingest that vitamin D for nutrients. Father, we know that as we sit under your word, it's going to be like the sun affecting the earth. It will revive us. It will restore us. It will make us whole. I pray for any person here who's a Christian who doesn't have a habit pattern of reading your word. I pray that they would regularly read your word, that they would systematically read it, not by happenstance, but they would plan out a schedule of reading the Bible at least once through the year, um, that they would read at least three chapters of the Old Testament, three chapters of the New, chronologically every day, that they'd read the Psalms at least once a day, Father, that they would give themselves over to seeking wisdom. And I know, God, that in the same way the sun saturates the earth, the word will saturate, renew, revive, and restore every person who gives themselves over to a life of the word. Oh, God, make the simple wise. Make the naive prudent. And help every person who's as sheep going astray turn everyone back to the Lord. Turn our hearts back to you, God, through your word, in Jesus' name. Now, if you never received Christ, 
as Lord and Savior in your life, I pray that today you would give your life to Jesus. The Bible says if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God rose him from the dead, you will be saved. And so if you don't know Jesus, but you believe he died for you, that he rose from the dead, that he's alive right now, I want you to pray this prayer. I'm not asking you to make a decision. I'm asking you to be a disciple, to live a life of commitment to Christ. That could only come by first initially making that decision and then afterwards joining a church and having people teach you the ways of God as well as living a, an ordered life of study and prayer, of seeking the Lord every day. So if you believe in Jesus, and you want to give your life to him or if you want to renew your life, maybe you once knew him and you walked away. Let's pray this prayer. Say, Heavenly Father, I come to you. I thank you that Jesus took upon my sins on the cross, that he was died, he was buried and rose again, that he's alive. Jesus, because you're alive, come in my life. I'm yours. Help me to follow you all the days of my life. Fill me with the power of your spirit. Connect me with Bible-believing Christians and a strong church. And I will give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. I pray that you are blessed by the word, and I hope that we meet one day in person. Bless you. We trust that you were blessed. For more information regarding our church, please go to our website at www.resurrectionchurchofny.com or call 718-436-0242, extension 0.